It's time to head out on the front porch on KFRM. Grab your favorite drink, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation on the front porch. Today on the front porch, we have a very special guest with a, as I said in our promo earlier today, uh, fascinating story that we get a chance to share with you on the front porch. We're joined today by Jeff Moore. And Jeff is an author. He has also uh, been in an interview that uh, many of you will know a lot about because he is the guy that Bradley Cooper played in the movie The Mule with Clint Eastwood. He was a DEA agent at that time. And he has a new book out that's called Quiet Houses. I've had the opportunity to read. I could not, literally could not put it down. I know it's easy to say that when you're speaking with the author, but uh, it was page after page just kept me going. He uh, spent a year as a... Uh, undercover agent in the Kansas City, Missouri area. Jeff, thanks so much for stepping in on the front porch and, and visiting with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, give uh, introduce you to our listeners a little bit and uh, and share uh, kind of a little background before you got into your career. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I've actually grown up all over the Midwest. Uh, I'm an Air Force brat. My dad was in the Air Force. He was a career serviceman. And every few years, I'd, I'd end up in a new spot. But it was always the Midwest, uh, St. Louis, Kansas City. Um, we were overseas once for a few years. But um, it's, it's hard to say I'm really from anywhere at this point. <laughs> I understand. So growing up, what was, what was kind of the dream thought of having a career? We all have those ideas of what we want to do and then uh, you know life takes us in different paths it surely did you did you have something that you were had a goal in mind growing up you know i uh my, my career path is really strange and <laughs> i started out in college i was i was uh, a fine arts major and then i ended up switching to commercial graphics and i and i i was uh into illustration and design and stuff and stuff like that Ended up graduating college, uh, worked for some advertising agencies doing uh, design work for different products. Um, in kind of an unforeseen turn of the economy, I ended up losing my job. <laughs> and I had, a, I had a brand new baby. Uh, I was just married. Um, I was completely out of work. Found another job uh, right away, kind of doing the same thing. Uh, ended up losing that job within a month. And uh, I was just kind of at my wit's end. I was like, I, I need to get something really quick to keep the lights on. So I just just went into uh, the Kansas City Personals and found an ad at the back of the paper. It said, hey, if you want to become a police officer, we'll, we'll pay for your six months of academy training, and, and you'll have a job right away. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah, this, this will work for a little bit. I'll, I'll do this, and I'll just end up coming back to what I uh, was doing before and um, just it was just crazy after uh, about a year I, I, I really started enjoying it before I knew it um, I didn't end up uh, working five years as a policeman for Kansas City Missouri and then ended up uh, transferring to the Drug Enforcement Administration where I've been for the last 19 years. Wow uh, and as the book says you were living a pretty pretty comfy life before things went south in the economy. I mean, you, you were living uh, the living in style in KC. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I lived in um, 
Prairie Village, which was like a really nice suburbs of, of Kansas City. My, my life was relaxing. I had never um, really even driven through, uh, per se, a bad neighborhood or had any interactions with drugs or anything like that. And um, it was just such a, a weird journey from that. And then five years later, uh, when the book takes place, I, I literally ended up as an undercover police officer um, where I ended up uh, knocking on drug houses all day and, and kind of walking around the streets as a drug addict with, with my informant. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a wild, wild story. Uh, you know, as, as I was reading the book, I, I grew up in, in Missouri, uh, well south of, of Kansas City, but I went to William Joel College, which is in Liberty, just outside of KC. Yep. And so the locations I had never been around, but I knew to stay away from those areas uh, as you read through the book. And, and here you are diving right into the middle of it. Um, as far as becoming a police officer, starting there, and I don't want to give the book away, but it's just fascinating that uh, you took to it the way you did. Uh, it was it was a gradual learning process and it's such a learning curve you had in front of you, but uh, it it had a great interest to you for some reason. Yeah, it, it was, um, I, I kind of felt up until then I wasn't really seeing what the real world was about. And then all of a sudden when you when you take the step into um, kind of seeing people at their worst or when they need you the most, um, it's just really an eye-opener of what goes on that most people really don't see. And um, I, was kinda, I was kind of lucky I ended up working for guys that were, um, pretty decent uh, co-workers and and it just took off and I had a, I had a really great time and, and um, it just felt like you know I was really doing something for the community and not really self-serving myself as, as I had felt like I was doing before. Right um, and, and as you you're going out into these communities and, and to these um, nuisance homes as as i guess your patrol called them the drug houses around the areas the first time that you uh well actually i guess talk about the decision to join uh that unit the uh, the special unit that was taking down narcotics yeah um there's a there's a lot of politics uh at the time where they were called they were actually drug houses but the the department really didn't want to label them as drug houses they they called them nuisance houses <laughs> And so these, a lot of these homes were kind of quasi-abandoned, and uh, people would just go in there and occupy them and, and basically just sell drugs out the back door all day and night. And some of these neighborhoods, you know, were you know, just blue-collar neighborhoods with decent people in them, but one or two drug houses on these streets would just really make these people's lives uh, unbearable. Mm. And so the department... Um, really was pushing to get these houses closed. And so they, they ramped up their undercover program where they were really pushing for undercover uh, cops and informants to make buys out of these houses. And once they made a drug purchase out of the house, uh, you'd get a search warrant a couple of days later and, and hit the door. And, and, and hopefully it would slow the house down for a while. Sometimes it would close it. But um, it wasn't always super successful i understand there was good intentions with the program but it just i don't know if it really 
in the long run if it really closed down as many houses as they wanted to. Um, but it, uh, but anyways, there's a unit that was called the Street Narcotics Unit. They were just a small group of guys, and they were uh, in charge of trying to get into as many houses as possible. And I had a buddy that was in the unit, and I was kind of curious. I was like, hey, you know, Rod, can you tell me about this a little bit? And you know, he just told me, you know, you're 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 out here on your own, and you know, you live by your wits, and, you, and you're basically purporting yourself to be um, just a really indigent street junkie trying to get into these places. Mm. And um, I ended up making it into the unit after uh, a few months of being on a waiting list, and um, ended up doing it for a year, uh, just going through all these different um, unusual experiences and and all these different uh, houses that we end up going into every day the decision to do that blows my mind uh to become a police officer one thing to want to be in this unit and and having an understanding of what you were getting into or did you really have a full understanding of what was going to lie ahead of you for that year you know it, it um you don't realize how big the tide of this counterculture is until you actually see the other side hmm. when you're you know pushing a patrol car around you, you're you're so inundated with calls all day, all day long and you know we, we would have 14 or i'm sorry 20 uh, some calls a, a shift where you're going to domestic violence calls and um all different you know uh, range of different things but you're you're just so busy you really don't see uh, this, this underside of what goes on with um, drugs and communities and stuff like that. And then once we ended up working in this unit, you know, that's all you do. You're just literally receiving uh, tips from neighbors saying, hey, we got a drug house in our neighborhood. Can you guys shut it down? And so, you, you know, you grab your tip sheet and um, you put on your best uh, persona of a drug addict and you try to get into that house with a little song and dance and you get in there, you buy some drugs and then the secrets of your safety is getting out of the house as quick as possible. You really don't want to stay in these places too long. You just want to get in there make your undercover buy and, and, and get out of there. And then that serves the purpose of getting the search warrant to, to close that house or to hit the door a few days later. You know, uh, the book is called Quiet Houses for our listeners. Jeff Moore is the author who's with us on the front porch. And as I go to this break, I'll just tell our listeners the book is this good. I, I described it to a couple of coworkers. As I'm reading through some of the visits to those houses, I found my palms getting sweaty and clamming up. Uh, I mean, it's it's that real, and I it could just envision myself, because I worked retail in Kansas City. So, you know, I lived what you were living before you became a police officer. I never had any I thoughts of doing uh, anything of that nature. And, and to put myself in those shoes, it just is, it's, it's, it's a, a wild, wild ride uh, of a very true story, which, uh, which is pretty amazing. I am going to take a break, Jeff. We'll come back and talk more about... Uh, Jeff Moore's life and about the book. It's called Quiet Houses. Do check it out. We'll return with more on the front porch. We are on the front porch today with Jeff Moore, who was a special agent, Drug Enforcement Administration, still is, and uh, was a police officer in Kansas City. He was telling us about his undercover work 
in uh, Casey Moe and, uh, as he said, lived in Prairie Village, Kansas, a suburb, um, and was was doing a pretty comfortable life when things kind of collapsed. And he uh, goes in to uh, get training for police academy, and uh, the next thing you know, he is a police officer and goes into this special narcotics unit where uh, he goes undercover. Um, Tell us a little bit about, and again, I don't want to steal the stories from the book, but I think we can tease the listeners with some of the details, including your ride-along buddy, not a cop. Uh, Tammy uh, is an interesting character, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, full, full disclosure, I uh, I was not good at this at all. I, was, uh, I, I wasn't passing mustard as an undercover narc and i was really struggling and uh, my supervisor ended up um pushing me to work with this informant that we had just brought into the unit uh it was an african-american woman named tamra mack um and she she just really had a um gregacious outgoing personality she was <laughs> um she was a, a really good soul and in the book it kind of shows our relationship which is really contentious at the beginning because I, it was just such a challenge for her to train someone like myself how to survive on the street and not be such a square and, and try to get into these houses <laughs> and and um she ended up working as my partner for a year and it was just uh her herself and i and we would we'd go to like uh probably four or five drug houses a week and she would she would coach me along the way like hey um, you know, try doing this and, and, and less of this. But uh, she she actually was concerned about uh, kind of keeping us safe in all the narcs that she worked with. And, uh, you know, if there was a house that was too dangerous, she'd say, hey, Jeff, this one, I don't think you should, this one, I'll, I'll, just t- I'll just go in there myself. It was overprotective of the cops and the narcs that she was working with, but um, at times, she was a, l- a little bit difficult to, uh, to manage as an informant. <laughs> Very colorful, to say the least, uh, uh, in the, yeah. the manner she speaks with you. And, and uh, yeah, it, it was a fun part of the to book to uh, to get to know her and get to know your relationship as as working uh, at these drug houses and, and and taking them down and and staying safe in the process. I want to back up just a little bit. The other officers in this unit um, were they. Were any of them ones that knew this type of life? Not that they were drug addicts, but were they, had they been around it? Because for you, it's you're truly in a in a foreign country almost. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some some guys pick it up easy. Uh, I struggled the first month. I I was literally being. I, I was trying to make street corner sales, and guys were like, "Hey, I know you're a cop. Just you know, f off and all this stuff." It was just <laughs> for me. I just couldn't. I couldn't get into the role. And um, it just took a longer learning curve for me to finally get there. But some guys, uh, they flourished. I mean, they just they love kind of slipping into this alter ego and, and just really getting into this part. But it's just everyone is different. It's just um, for me, though, it, it, towards the end, it was just uh, the stress really kind of gets you eventually. Mm. It's it's. It was a unit where most guys only stayed in there for about, uh, usually about a year and a half to two years was the most. And the, and the problem is it's just you kind of get 
to the point where you're just a little bit, um, anxiety weighs on you and just the challenges of getting in these houses. And then eventually sometimes people start recognizing you when you mm. end up going to some of the same houses again. Yeah, I can um, imagine that. And, and I would, I would think the initial rush and adrenaline, if you're, you know, high energy junkie, uh, there is excitement to it. I know the danger, like I said, as I'm reading, my uh, literally heart's beating and my hands are clamming up as you're going into these locations. But I would imagine, I would imagine the rush at some point does become just anxiety and, you know, how, how long do we want to spin this wheel at these different places? Not knowing if you're getting out alive, literally not knowing if you're getting out alive. Yeah. And it, um, I, I just really wasn't channeling the stress very well. And, uh, when I get over, uh, anxious about things, I kind of lose my appetite and I ended up losing a lot of weight to the process. And I, I, I did, but towards the end, I really did look like a drug addict. I had, <laughs> I had long hair. I had lost 30 pounds of weight. Um, wasn't really sleeping anymore. So when that, when the end of, when the end of the adventure came out, I was, I was sad to go, but I was like, I, I have to get back to, you know, you know, working in a patrol car. I just, just I can't do this forever. But it, it's, it is, it is an exciting venture. You know, you're just, you just never know what's behind that door. That's the only thing is, there's not really anything that prepares you for each house. Some of them are really low key. You go in there, everyone's friendly. Um, there's not an issue, and then you go in these other ones and. Some of them are horrific. You know, you get locked in there and guys have guns and it just gets, mm. you know, the unpredictability is what kind of wears you down a little bit. Yeah, it would just have to, to wear a person down. Um, as yeah. you as you left the unit um, and, and spent that, I mean, a year's time of doing this, uh, what was the next step for you? Did because you had served and and been so successful, did you have kind of some choices on where you wanted to go next? Um, you know, it, at that point, I knew um, I wanted to work narcotics uh, as a career in law enforcement. So I I applied to the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and got into their academy, uh, Quantico, Virginia, that they share with the FBI. Went through that. And then uh, ended up being assigned to Detroit, Michigan, and I've been I've been up in Detroit for the last 19 years. <laughs> had you been to Detroit before? No, I, I had never been there. Hmm. Um, I I actually love Michigan now. I, I feel that this is my home because I've been here so long and I've raised my kids here and everything. Um, but um, the city of Detroit itself is um, it's just a different animal. It's just there's a lot of neighborhoods that are pretty dangerous mm-hmm. um, and just really disadvantaged, and there's just a really uh, bad handle on the drugs. So there's just no shortage of uh, work once I got here. It was just really the wild west of um, drug dealers. You seem to get that picture in when you mentioned Detroit, at least certain neighborhoods, and, and to uh, to show up and I'm sure you heard ahead of time some of the things you might be getting into. Was it was it worse than you expected? Um, you know, Detroit has really changed over the last 20 years. And, and when I got there in 2004, um, it was horrific. You could not walk around in downtown Detroit. It was just um, abandoned. Like, 
I think there was like 40% of the skyscrapers were abandoned. And then um, Rocket Mortgage, Mortgage came in and brought tens of thousands of uh, employees into the downtown area. Mm-hmm. And, um, and now the downtown is totally different. I mean, it looks like, you know, downtown Chicago or just a regular city. Um, it's just, the problem is there's just a lot of poverty in the outlying neighborhoods um, around Detroit or within Detroit. And then, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, violent gang activity, which is very, it's been very difficult to, to handle that and, and uh, reduce some of the crime that goes on there. Well, as I go to another break, I will, I will say this. God bless the men and women that do this work. Um, it is we we back you guys as as best we can in in all forms and and it uh, it is a dangerous work and and a work that has to be done and and we're thankful that we have those men and women to do just that i'm going to take another break we have jeff moore with us on the front porch we're going to get into uh his uh story as a dea agent and i'll again remind you his book about his work in kansas city as an undercover cop is called quiet houses and it's fantastic do check it out we'll return with more on the front porch jeff moore our guest on the front porch author of quiet houses again his undercover work in kansas city details going into uh the drug houses and uh, working with his informant right along buddy tammy I, I, that line that line right along buddy for some reason popped up in my head every time she got in the car with you to go to these houses and uh I can just imagine what what a day with her might have been like to some degree. Um, now we've got you to Detroit, Michigan, where you've been for the last 19 years, I think you said, as a DEA agent. Um, give us an idea of what, I know I, I'm going to say typical, and that's the wrong word. Uh, I don't think anything's typical in your line of work. But give us an idea what you kind of expect as you come in on your first first day of the week. Um, you know, it's, uh, I came in and I didn't, I didn't really realize the scope of how big some of these drug crews got. And, um, I remember my first, uh, big case I worked, I got a a tip on an airplane that was flying between Detroit and, and, uh, Texas. And this little Cessna flew in to the downtown Detroit airport and we ended up interdicting the pilot when he landed. And um, he had two suitcases when he got off the, the plane, and we introduced ourselves and said, hey, we'd like to search your bags, and he refused. So we ran a drug dog on the bags, and, and he ended up having 15 uh, bricks of Coke in his luggage. And uh, at that time, it was the most drugs I'd ever seen, and I, I literally thought we had cleaned up the city of Detroit. I thought we had <laughs> won the drug war, and it was, you know, the city was just totally out of drugs, and my coworkers are laughing at me, and they're just okay. like, "This is just, this is just a day's work." <laughs> wow! But yeah, and it's just um, these crews here. They just, you know, these guys, um, they just make millions of dollars, you know. And uh, since I've been here, the drugs have really changed. Where it's, uh, it's more into fentanyl and and meth now than it used to be, and, and a lot, a lot of these drugs are obviously much more dangerous than um, before. Yeah, and uh, um, it is outright scary 
any of the trafficking that's going on, but when you hear the fentanyl and, and you hear the reports and the numbers that are showing up and the, the places it's showing up, you know, it's not just in, right. in the areas where you expect it to be. Uh, that's got to be – how concerning is it for you guys to, to just see this taking shape and, and spreading in the manner it is and, and trying to fight that fight? Yeah, it's uh... – it's getting a little bit better with awareness because a lot of these um, tablets are coming in and they're in their counterfeit form of um, different opiate pills or fentanyl pills. And you just don't know how many micrograms of fentanyl you're going to get in a tablet. And there's a lot of people that ingest something that they think is Vicodin or another, um, you know, street drug and they end up getting a fatal dose of fentanyl. And we just can't really um, make people aware enough that, you know, if, if you're not getting a prescribed medication or getting on the street, you could be getting a fatal dose of fentanyl and not know about it. So that's, and we're seeing this really throughout the suburbs. We're seeing it, you know, outside of Detroit. Um, we're seeing it all over our area of Michigan. And, and it's just the the overdoser or through the, through, I'm sorry, through the roof and, I think last year was almost or over uh, 100,000 drug poisonings mm-hmm. or over them overdoses. Wow. Um, as you as you go into uh, your field and you talked about your area, are you primarily in Detroit or is there a region that you and your your guys and gals cover? Yeah, um, we we cover Detroit um, up to Port Huron on the north side, and then uh, from. Uh, the Detroit River on the east, and then all the way to Jackson, Michigan. So we we cover uh, a ju- what it is is a federally designated judicial district, mm. and the U.S. is divided into a certain number of federal districts, and each uh, agency has an office that covers that district, whether it's the FBI, ATF, or DEA. And um, ours is the Eastern District of Michigan, Michigan, the Southern Division, which is Detroit. Um, so whenever we, we work a case, we can reach outside of Michigan. We just have to have a nexus that originates in, in Detroit or Detroit's recipient of drugs that, that would come from outside the district. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yep. How many, uh, when you're working a case, how many people are on that case together? Or is it does it vary um, on the, the, the size of the case? Yeah, you you, um, you always work with a partner agent on the case, uh, but you're you're in an enforcement group that might have ten to twelve guys, and you know if, if you and your partner want to do a search warrant, um, you know you basically incorporate your team to help you with the, the execution of the warrant. Uh, if you do a wiretap or you're listening to someone's phone, you know you have your entire group helping you. But uh, each case has usually just two agents assigned to it that are in charge of um, bringing all the evidence towards the conclusion of the case for prosecution. And then once you have enough evidence, you end up uh, in a, uh, a hearing called grand jury, and you present that to, uh, uh, I think it's a minimum of 16 jurors to to basically uh, vote a true bill or not a true bill on, on the evidence you brought before them. To, to get in a federal indictment against somebody in your in your investigation that's uh-huh. 
doing something illegal. Okay. I, I know that you said your your first big bust that you did was the pilot that had the, the uh, what, 15 bricks of cocaine or whatever that amount yeah. was. A crazy, crazy amount, and you thought you cleaned up the city. <laughs> So, so that's that's probably the most surprising thing that uh, that you found as you came into this career. What has been what has been the most um, consistent thing you see or that you deal with in this job? Um, you know, we uh, we really rely upon um, source information and informants more than I had realized at the beginning. Hmm. Um, and there's an old saying for narcs, uh, good informants make great agents. And that really holds true. If you have a, a decent source of information and you kind of treat that person well and don't expose their cooperation, you know, to the the other parts of their organization, you can really get into these uh, groups and, and kind of work them from the inside out, which is it's, it's where you want to be because it's, it's just so difficult at this level. Um, to introduce an undercover into a group of guys that are moving 20 keys of coke a week and they've never seen this guy before. It just, it doesn't work. So we have to rely upon informants um, for these types of cases. Like just, there are eyes and we couldn't really make the cases without them. So that that was the biggest thing I've really learned mm-hmm. on, on the Fed side, working these types and these sides of cases. Right. Uh, I know that obviously drug dealers... Uh, to use the term loosely, uh, are not, they don't trust anybody. So I understand where you're coming from. You introduce a new player in a game, and they're going to pick out the player right away until that time goes long enough in that they can gain some trust. Is that kind of fair? Yeah, and it's interesting, too. The larger the larger you get as a trafficker, the less customers you have. Um, usually guys that are doing 50 to 100 kilos per shipment usually only have two or three customers. And a guy, you know, that's selling ounces on the street, he might have, you know, 50 different customers he deals with during the week. So it's just, it's a strange hierarchy. The higher you get up, the, the less people you, you have coming in contact with you, just as a form of protection and insulating yourself. You know, you're working in Kansas City as an undercover cop going to these drug houses. Uh, you know, you're, you're trying to chop some things off at, at the base, I guess, if you will. And to go into what you're doing in Detroit uh, with the uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, um, you feel like you're getting a bigger chunk taken out by the work you're doing now. Yeah, you're really um, you're really at a point where these guys are. Um, when I was in Kansas City, we would you'd knock out a house or you'd arrest a guy in the corner selling you know bags or whatever and. The very next day, you know, he's back out or there's another guy to replace him. And um, when we work these cases now, it's just, you know, we, we deal with thresholds where, you know, the, the minimum amount of time we put someone in prison is five years at the federal level. So we just we try to target um, basically the best traffickers we can find, guys that are just really supplying most of the city or just large parts of our area. Hmm. And then you take you know, you take out as many as possible. You know, a lot of our indictments are 15, 30 guys at, at a whack, and you end up taking this whole crew out, and it really um, slows that organization to a halt for a period of time until that can get built, built back up by other guys to replace them. But 
a lot of a lot of times some of these really huge uh, crews um, they never really get replaced. You know, if, if we're lucky enough to to do a really good job and knock out a really strong uh, drug crew, wow. you can you can ab- you absolutely see a difference. Um, even through drug pricing on the street, the prices change because there's less availability of it. Uh, that's that is that is very fascinating. Uh, yeah. I want to get one more break in, Jeff. I want to come back and, and talk about. Uh, the movie The Mule, and I also want to get back to your new book, which again I'll tell our listeners it it is it's an easy read. I couldn't believe how quickly I got through it. I just I couldn't put it down. It's called Quiet Houses, and I know that uh, you and our our good friend Jeff Littlefield, who was going to join us today, you guys are are working together on uh, putting a screenplay uh, together. I want to talk about that. We will have Jeff back on. We've had him on before with his Nelson Riddle book, but uh, he's got a, a new sports book out. He'll be on next week with us. Uh, but I want to get this break and come back and talk about uh, the New York Times interview that led to okay. uh, the mule, okay? Yep. We'll join you with more on the front porch. Once more, we're on the front porch with Jeff Moore, special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, we've talked about his a book out, uh, Quiet Houses, and we'll talk more about that as we close down the show. But uh, a New York Times interview, um, if you know the movie The Mule, you know the story of how it kind of got started and uh, and taking down the world's oldest drug mule, Leo Sharp, which was played by Clint Eastwood. So I know a lot of people have seen the movie. Uh, Jeff Moore, we're speaking with today, uh, gave that interview, and, and Bradley Cooper would end up being him on the big screen Talk about, I guess, the interview uh, and the steps that led following that, and, and were you involved in much of it as it became a screenplay and became a movie? Yeah. Um, the case originated in uh, late 2011, and we ended up uh, getting onto a really huge uh, cocaine organization, and they were uh, bringing dope directly from Tucson, in quantities of two to three hundred kilos at a time, in in uh, semi trucks and mm-hmm. the motorhome and different uh, vehicles, and then literally uh, four to eight million dollars uh, in return cash was heading towards the the southern border to make it into Mexico. And this this organization was totally uh, sourced by the Sinaloa drug cartel. So it was one of the bigger cases we had seen. Um, and then once we started working it, we had had an informant that told us about this courier who was this elderly 80 year old, uh, world war two veteran. They called him the grandfather. And they said, this guy has not been caught in 10 years. He's the best, um, drug mule that we've ever seen as an organization. And, and he was literally driving a Lincoln pickup truck, uh, from the border to Detroit. You know, you know, two to three hundred kilos in the in the bed of the truck. So we ended up um, using some wiretaps. We identified this uh, man named Leo Sharp. We get him. Uh, we hit him on the highway. He's got drugs. Um, we he, he gets arrested, and and then we take down the case and, and we indict. I think twenty some guys. So, in Leo Sharp was. A very interesting person. He was very um, eccentric, and and he played to the media a lot. Where when he was walking in the court, he would run up to the cameras and scream something into the camera, and, and, and kind of put on a show. And I don't know if it was planned or if he was just 
maybe in just later stages of dementia. I don't really know right. what the whole thing was. But anyways, Clint Eastwood, I'm sorry, let me back up. Um, the New York Times uh, took an interest in the story and interviewed me regarding the case and um, Leo Sharp and his life and the steps we had gone through to, to catch this guy who had, who had been doing this for 10 years and, and never been caught. And the story ended up being released uh, into a New York Times article. Uh, the writer's great guy named Sam Dolnick. And um, it's published. Clint Eastwood notices the story about this, this older uh, 87-year-old man, you know, his life going from a World War II uh, veteran and war combat hero um, ended up being this huge cartel mule, and then his company um, purchased the rights to the movie. And then from there, um, they ended up producing this um, quasi-non-fictional version of Leo Sharp's life. You know, obviously the names are changed, and, right? And there, there's some details that are changed, but it, it just shows Clint uh, Eastwood is it's this really colorful, uh, interesting character. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Did, uh, as, as you've seen the movie, I know that some things have to be changed for, uh, for, uh, for Hollywood, but do you feel like it's pretty true to, to word? Um, you know, it, I, I actually love the movie and I know they change things to appeal to certain audiences and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And, in the movie, they really portrayed him as just a man that kind of accidentally got into this and did it for a while, and, you know, he had to pay these bills and stuff. But the real Leo Sharp was um, had been doing this for 10 years and made millions of dollars doing it. Mm. So he was a little bit more nefarious of a character than um, how he was portrayed, I think. Yeah. He was just really entrenched in this lifestyle, and there was no apologies of what he was doing. He was really making a tremendous amount of money um, transporting all this cocaine. As far as uh, the the making of the movie, the build-up to the movie, screenplay and so forth, were you an advisor? Were you consulted <laughs> at all? No, I, 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 I was not a... I wish I could have sat on the set and met Clint Eastwood, but I'm, I'm sorry to say I really didn't have any input in the movie or, or any... I didn't really even... Uh, know about it till it came out in the media, and then huh. eventually when it was released as a trailer. How, how do you feel about Bradley Cooper playing you? Um, you know, I just... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's not something you get to ask very often of people. So. I, I, I'm just glad it wasn't uh, Dwight Schrute from The Office playing <laughs> me or something that would have been, you know, kind of embarrassing. I'm like, oh, that, they picked a great actor, so I'm... <laughs> I'm very happy. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, speaking of movies, uh, your new book, which I, I've, I've, you know, given accolades all show long, and I will continue to because really, oh, I, I appreciate it was, that. I'm I'm serious, Jeff. It was not just because I'm speaking with you. It, I I literally started it, and it was like the next thing I knew, I I was done two days later. So it's a great oh, read. It's shit. called yeah, called uh, Quiet Houses. It's about his time, Jeff's time in Kansas City. A uh, year undercover, going into drug houses uh, with his uh, sidekick Tammy. Uh, with that alone, it ought to be enough a tease for people to get into. <laughs> so, with beyond that, though, I know you and Jeff Littlefield, who we just mentioned uh, earlier, are working to get this into theaters eventually. Correct? Yeah, he's uh, 
he's been a mentor to me and a, and a writing coach and a literary agent for the last uh, couple of years. And I love him to death. And he just kind of keeps me um, focused on these projects. And, and we've got um, a, a few things in the fire right now that we're trying to, to get going um, after this. But we, uh, there is a screenplay version that we're polishing up and trying to get that into <clears throat> some people's hands to see if it gains any traction. And hopefully if the book gets enough of an audience that can uh, push push the screenplay a little bit for us. Yeah, you know, as, I, as I'm reading through, and then each, each chapter kind of has a different character or storyline to it, which made it easy to read as well. But, you know, I'm reading this, and I, I knew ahead of time that a screenplay was in the works at, or is getting polished up, as you said, but I could really see this playing out on the big yeah. screen. I mean, it just has that feel to it that it, it would make sense for it to become a movie to me. Yeah, we're, we're hoping, you know, if enough people enjoy this, it, you know, word will get out and eventually there'll be some interest. And I mean, the story is, is very genuine. It doesn't, it's not flattering to the drug war at all. It's just a smaller story of just some things that happen. And, and it really puts the front reader inside of these places that they're never going to see, you know, just everything in there are, they're taken from real accounts and really nefarious people. And it's just going to give the reader just this really odd journey. That's difficult to, to not read. <laughs> it, it, I agree completely. And it's, uh, it's got some real life twists that I won't give anything away, uh, that, uh, actually, you know, went down through this book and, and through the ending as well so for people that uh we've convinced to go get quiet houses and and get the read going where can they find it i'm, I'm guessing anywhere you buy your books right oh absolutely you can uh, get on barnes and noble uh amazon and just type in the quiet houses um the full the full title is the quiet houses fall of the narcs um you can google dea jeff moore you can google the quiet houses and it'll come up and i uh the kindle version might actually be free right now because we had um, a limited sale on it, but um, you can just you can get it at any online book retailer. Well, it's great stuff, Jeff. I, and, and your life is um, from a comfortable life in Prairie Village, Kansas, to the nitty gritty stuff of <laughs> of being an undercover agent, and now to uh, to being a, a drug enforcement administration agent in Detroit. It, it's a fascinating uh, story, and I really appreciate you taking time to share it with us. I really appreciate you you guys having me, and thank you so much for letting me share the story with you. Jeff Moore, our guest on the front porch, I'll say it again, The Quiet Houses. Uh, look it up, find it online, and, and be sure and get it in your hands. Uh, it is a terrific read. We appreciate the time from Jeff Moore.